Section 5 of Wellington by George Hooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3 The Maratha Campaigns, Part 2. It may be doubted, however, whether Shinda had any plan, seeing that neither his regular infantry nor his heavy guns had joined the swarming horse. Wellesley was glad to hear that both were coming as the infantry would be something solid to go upon, and the guns would retard the marches and give him a better chance of coming up with them. His own army was never in such marching trim, he told the sympathetic Malcolm, then absent and ill. I marched the other day twenty-three miles in seven and a half hours. All our marches are made at the rate of three miles an hour. On September 18th, a much-needed convoy with a military chest and many cattle came up from Mysoru, and that set Wellesley free to act. He moved at once northward towards the enemy, joined Stevenson near Sail Gaon and Budnapur on the 21st, and arranged a plan of offensive operations. The Maratha army at that time, complete in horse, foot, and guns, was understood to be near Bokerdun on the little river Ketna. Between them and the British rose a chain of heights above the right bank of the Puna, and their camps could only be reached by traversing the passes in two bodies and uniting on the northern slopes. Stevenson took the western and Wellesley the eastern road, designing to fall on both flanks of the Maratha host. That movement led to the Battle of Asai, or Asai, as it is written in the old books and maps. Wellesley marched on September 22nd into the hills between Budnapur and Jolna, and farther on the next day as far as Nolnaya, which he reached at eleven in the morning and where he intended to encamp. But here he found himself unexpectedly within six miles of the Confederates. A dragoon patrol brought in some grain dealers who told him that the Marathas were there and might be seen from a rising ground, but that they were preparing to depart and that the cavalry had already gone. So after securing the baggage in the camp at Nolnaya, he marched on, intending to assail the infantry, but instead of these alone he found the whole army, and yet he resolved to attack because retreat in the face of the abounding Maratha horse would have been perilous, and what is more important, because there was a chance indeed a certainty that getting wind of Stevenson's advance they would withdraw the infantry and guns. In fact, it was a great opportunity as well as a great risk, and Wellesley was not long in resolving to run the risk and seize the opportunity. Wellesley had a correct knowledge of Maratha character, and he never showed it more emphatically than when he determined almost as soon as he saw the enemy to fight him where he stood. At about one o'clock he was at the head of his little band, scanning the masses of infantry, the lines of batteries, the columns of cavalry, some of whom crossed the Ketna to watch him, and then he quickly decided that he would move along the front of their camps and suddenly strike their left. It was a bold resolve, for he had not more than two thousand Europeans in his available force of five thousand men and eighteen guns, while the enemy had an army put by some at fifty and certainly exceeding forty thousand and above one hundred cannon. It was a prudent resolve, because in fighting an Indian army victory follows the flag of the assailant, who begins with, and by his onward rush retains, 
that moral superiority which is worth myriads of men what wellesley saw from the rising ground to the south was a series of camps set up within an angle of the ground formed by the Ketna and the ravine of the jua the trained infantry begum sumrus pullmans and dupont's were on the left above the rocky channel of the Ketna, and with them was the formidable train of artillery the cavalry stood on the right extending far up the stream toward bokerdun the fortified village of Asai on the Nula, which covered the rear, was occupied by some foot. Wellesley's design was to march his little column diagonally to this front until he reached an unguarded fort at Pipulgalm, near the junction of the two ravines, the existence of which he inferred from the fact that there were houses on both banks. Then cross it rapidly, form athwart the angle, and falling upon the left of Shinda's regulars, roll up the whole line for some time although horsemen rode out to look at him his intention was not discerned probably he was not credited with the daring plan devised when the troops reached the ford the mahratta guns opened with great effect and as the destructive fire did not arrest the steady advance across the Ketna, the real object of the movement dawned upon the european officers in the mahratta army with the greatest regularity and precision admired by their opponents the regulars changed front forming line across the open space nowhere more than a mile wide facing the confluence of the watercourses the right resting on the Ketna, the left upon Asai, and the clouds of horse in the rear wellesley drew up his handful of infantry in two lines placing the cavalry behind as a reserve and it thus happened that instead of attacking a flank perpendicular to his front he had to engage a line parallel to his own he therefore altered his plan which now was to keep back his right push forward his left and throw the hostile forces upon Asai and the nula in its rear but the battle was not so fought at the outset for the piquets or leading troops on the right were by mistake led off toward Asai uncovering the second line and falling themselves into a deadly converging fire the seventy-fourth followed the piquets into the cannonade and a great gap was thus made in the array the enemy's horse rode up to charge and so serious was the peril on the right that the nineteenth light dragoons and a native cavalry regiment were obliged to charge at once eager for the fray they galloped up cheering as they went and cheered by the wounded and riding home even into the batteries saved the remnants of the piquets and the seventy-fourth on the british left the swift and steady rush of the seventy-eighth and the sepoys had carried the first line of guns and crushed in upon the second thus hurling the mahratta regulars upon the jonah nula in this part of the field the work was done with the bayonet not more than two rounds being fired by the british as the second line of guns was carried shots came from the first for the gunners who had been spared rose up when the troops swept onward and opened fire so that a resolute charge to the rear headed by the general was needed to punish the treachery this incident did not stop the forward sweep of the line which was in the nature of a right wheel and brought the troops almost parallel to the joa ravine the decisive strokes were the splendid charge of the dragoons and the irresistible sweep of the seventy-eighth upon the mahratta right the whole action was fought out in a comparatively small space 
for the triangle formed by the ravines is nowhere more than a mile wide and the stress of the combat fell upon Shinda's gunners and regulars for the cavalry scarcely took any part when the infantry fled over the nula the nineteenth again charged and unhappily colonel maxwell was killed the battle began a little after three o'clock it was over at six and in that brief space out of less than five thousand there were above four hundred europeans and more than sixteen hundred natives killed and wounded a rare proof of the courage and resolution which in three hours crushed a great army destroyed a much prized native infantry and captured one hundred and two guns and all their tumbrils moreover these grand soldiers had actually marched twenty-four miles before they stepped across the Katna into the battlefield wellesley of course says nothing of his own conduct in the fight but others testify that he was always in the thick of the action a horse dying under him and that he was not only cool but displayed that springing valour already conspicuous when he led his horsemen upon the bands of dandiawag Monroe, who by the light of the rules of war criticised sharply the mode of attack admitted that though it might not have been the safest it was undoubtedly the most decided and heroic it will have the effect of striking greater terror into the hostile armies than could have been done by any victory gained with the assistance of colonel stevenson's division and of raising the national military character already high in india still higher no general could desire from a competent judge more emphatic approval of his great achievement although the operations were prolonged for nearly three months yet the victory of assai practically decided the war in the deccan while wellesley kept his division ready to move anywhere stevenson crossing the tapti captured burhanpur and the strong hill fort of asirgur no efforts of the enemy availed to avert these results at first the combined mahratta army made a feint in a southerly direction which drew wellesley toward aurungabad but he soon discovered it and returned before they could meddle with stevenson then shinde sending the remains of his infantry over the nerbuda halted on the tapti and the barar raja alone pushed southward again passing the hills on the west and moving towards aurungabad wellesley at once came down the goat and at his approach the mahratta went eastward trying but in vain to snatch a heavy convoy the escort of which beat off his horse the general marching one hundred and twenty miles in eight days saved all his convoys defended the nizam's territories and would have smashed the rajah had the convoy not demanded his care but all the subsequent solid operations of the war he wrote to his brother depended on the arrival of that convoy and it was more important to secure it than to gain a victory over a body of horse after resting the troops he followed the rajah into berar and stevenson moved into the same territory shinde had by this time influenced perhaps by lake's brilliant victories made a sort of peace which he did not observe but as the rajah held aloof hoping to save gawilgurt both armies converged upon him and after being separated for two months joined together at parterley on november twenty ninth though the enemy had decamped he was still visible on the march from a tower his cavalry skirmished with the advance and when wellesley rode up to push up infantry supports 
he discerned his antagonists posted in front of Argaum, where he designed to encamp. It was late and hot, but he determined to attack. Designing to press the enemy's left, he advanced in two lines, the right thrown forward, but when his sepoys came within range of the guns, remembering perhaps the slaughter of Asai, they fell into a panic and faced about. Luckily, the general wrote, I happened to be at no great distance from them, and I was able to rally them and to re-establish the battle. If I had not been there, I am convinced we should have lost the day. So that it was a critical moment. When formed again, they behaved steadily, and as only Shinda's horse really fought, the action was soon over. Yet so much time had been lost that, as Wellesley wrote to his brother, not more than twenty minutes' sun remained when I led on the British cavalry to the charge. Fortunately, the moon was bright, and the horse galloped on and gathered much spoil. The routed enemy left on the field thirty-eight guns and all his ammunition. The troops were under arms and I on horseback from six in the morning until twelve at night. The immediate fruit of the battle was that Ragoji Bansla, the only Maratha who cared about his country, soon yielded. For the formidable stronghold of Gawilgurt rested upon a block of mountain and only accessible on one side, to reach which Stevenson struggled for a week through the roadless hills, was battered for two days and stormed on the third, December 15th, and that fine exploit which induced the Berar Raja to sign a treaty ended the war in the Deccan. On the day after the fall of the Berar fortress, a welcome visitor arrived in camp. Malcolm, who had been so long absent ill at Bombay, the two men thoroughly liked and appreciated each other, and Malcolm's gaiety and high spirits were a luxury to the staff. Wellesley had grown graver and older-looking under the stress of his immense labors as a soldier diplomatist, for the whole charge lay upon him, and something of this gravity, says Sir John Kay, communicated itself to his associates. Much work and much thought imparted a somber tint to the social aspects of life at headquarters, they were tired and still. Unless there was something of unusual interest to excite him, the general spoke little at table. Hence Malcolm's arrival in camp was like a sudden burst of sunshine. From one of his letters we obtain a glimpse of the two men, for Malcolm says, I have written in the same manner as I have been accustomed to speak while partaking your favorite recreation, that is, pacing up and down before his tent in the Deccan, as a few years after, in a grey greatcoat, he moved up and down the little square at Freneda, and in his old age he walked with Arbuthnot on the platform at Valmer. When the treaty with the Berar Raja was ratified, Wellesley set out on his return to the south, striking at a strong band of marauders on his way, and warmly thanking his troops, who marched sixty miles in twenty hours, for their persevering activity. He visited Pune and then descended the goats to Bombay, where he remained some days, and then once more ascended to the cooler Deccan. I was feasted out of Bombay as I was feasted into it, he wrote to a friend, but whether so greeted or not he never ceased his public labours, and his prolific pen was never idle. A deep difference of opinion had arisen respecting the proper policy which should be pursued toward Shinda and Wellesley strongly urged the governor-general to restore Gwalior to that chief. If that was not done and war was renewed, 
Wellesley would enter into it with zeal and ardor, having no doubt of success. But, he added, however I may be pleased with the prospect of that success, as far as I am concerned, I should prefer the continuance of peace for the public and for you. He laments that the system of moderation and conciliation on which he made the much-praised treaties should be in danger of being given up. The Governor-General may write what he pleases at Calcutta, we must conciliate the natives, or we shall not be able to do his business, and all his treaties without conciliation and an endeavour to convince the native powers that we have views besides our own interest are so much waste paper. Such were his principles, and he always acted on them to the best of his ability and knowledge, a warrior who sought peace, a statesman who had a single eye to the commonweal. The period of his sojourn in India was now approaching its term. In June of 1804, the Governor-General called him to Bengal, whither he at once went, passing through Seringapatam and Madras, and of course diligently transacting business all the way. Not long after he joined his brother came the startling news of Monson's disasters, which he called in a letter to Mr. Webb, the greatest and most disgraceful to our military character of any that have ever occurred. The memory of it yet lives in native song, and in September 1804, the unlooked-for success of Holker seemed to shake for a moment the bases, not of our power, but of the recently concluded peace. The Governor-General gave General Lake the opportunity of asking for the services of Wellesley, but he desired that the latter should return to the Deccan. Thither, accordingly, he went in November, resolved to embark for England as soon as Holker had been defeated, and his brother would give permission. Holker was routed by Lake in December, and at the beginning of 1805, all signs of danger having disappeared, the general made up his mind to depart. The English mail arrived at Madras on February 16, 1805, with letters of September 4, 1804, and a gazette notifying that Lake had been made Lord Lake of Delhi and La Soirie and a Knight of the Bath. That night he determined on going to England. Lord William Bentinck had succeeded to the governorship of Madras, and Sir John Craddock, afterwards Lord Howden, to the post of commander-in-chief. To the latter, Wellesley wrote in January, You think about my staying in India like a man who has just come out, and I, like one who has been here for seven years, involved in perpetual troubles. No Indian situation would tempt him to stay, even were he certain that in England no employment would be given to him. I am not rich, he added, in comparison with other people, yet quite sufficiently so for all my wants, and he was therefore independent of office. The truth is, a sort of homesickness had come upon him, he was inexpressibly anxious to see his friends again, especially perhaps a fair friend. She had told him that the smallpox had ravaged her beauty. But, of course, he did not allow that misfortune to break his troth. He was really ill. He appears plagued with a slow fever, wrote Malcolm to Major Shaw. He frets himself, which I never knew him do before. So it was writing to an agent respecting a passage he said that he was not very particular about accommodation, did not care a great deal about the price, nor much who the captain is or what the ship, so eager was he to fly from India. The admiral offered him a passage on the trident, 
and after bidding farewell to his friends and comrades personally or by letter taking leave of the troops so long under his command and depositing a sum of money for the benefit of salabut khan the son or adopted son of dandiawag sir arthur wellesley sailed from madras on march eighteen o five bearing with him proofs of public gratitude and private affection alike from natives who knew him to be just and humane and from europeans who admired his great actions his honest frank and high-minded character he sailed none too soon to his brother he wrote in july from st helena that his health was restored but that had he not quitted india he would have had a serious fit of illness and to malcolm he said i was wasting away daily and latterly when at madras i found my strength failed which had before held out it was therefore time he should quit the trying climate which he had braved so many years and it was well for england that he reached her shores not only with the renown he had won and the lustre of the great services he had performed fresh upon him but with body and mind alike abounding in the solid strength and tireless energy required to front and overcome the tremendous perils and obstacles which lay hid in the future without undue ambition he was what he desired to be a great and so far as man can be unselfish servant of his country who held himself bound in duty to uphold and promote by honourable means her honour prosperity and power such he was in india and such he remained to the end of his days end of section 5